Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. This week, I'm really thrilled to be here with Gabriella Braun. Gabriella is the director of Working Well, and she is the author of one of my favourite books of the past few years, All That We Are. So I'm absolutely chuffed to have Gabriella here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for saying it's one of your favourite books of the last few years. That's wonderful. And thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And we're going to talk a lot about the book today uh, because I know there'll be lots of people listening who are just fascinated by that process. And I also think that everybody should read the book. Um, But before we get stuck into all of that, can you just say a little bit about who you are and who you help? Okay. well, I, as you say, I have an organisation called Working Well. We try and help people do what it says on the tin. Um, But the bit that's different is applying psychoanalytic thinking and systemic thinking. So I'm trained to do that. I did a master's at the Tavistock in consulting to organisations using psychoanalytic approaches. I'm not clinically trained, but I'm trained to work in coaching or with teams around organisational issues. Um, I work across very different kinds of organisations, higher education, further education, schools, health, culture, arts, corporates, different types of organisations. And I both do individual coaching and work with teams. And what's really one thing that really struck me, actually, um, reading the book, was that although your working life has been extremely diverse, and you've helped numerous kind of organizations from lots of different sectors there's so much that holds it all together there's so much kind of similarity in the humanness of the people that you work with humanity that's the right word (laughs) um and I think yeah that's really fascinating and hopefully reassuring for people listening to this who are thinking about how their career might might uh, pan out and might change um so could you say a little bit about who you wrote the book for, who was in your mind when you were writing. Yes, thank you for giving me a chance to say it. Um, Who was in my mind changed over the many years it took me to write this book, it took rather a long time. So when I started, it was leaders that were in my mind. I, I knew that I was absolutely not writing for people like me or I think probably even people like you, it's wonderful that you love it. I'm delighted, but you weren't a target audience for me because I wanted to talk to people who don't know anything about psychological thinking or psychoanalytic thinking. And I wanted to make, because I think it, it has so much to offer in the workplace. And I think people like me have been very bad at bringing it out into the general public and that's what I wanted to do so I was determined to get to a mainstream publisher I didn't want to write an academic book I didn't want a niche book but I did start by thinking leaders in any organization that's who I have in my mind and over time that changed 
to thinking it's just people in organisations who are interested in understanding what goes on in them. So they might be a leader, they might be a member of a team, they might be a board member, they might have retired but want to still make sense of something they experienced back when they were working. So those were the people in my mind, people really wanting to understand the workplace and maybe I suppose people who might consider the way in which we need to change it because I strongly believe that we've gone very wrong with our workplaces and we've turned them into not all of them of course but too many we've turned into miserable places that actually can be really damaging for people really damaging for mental health the statistics are terrible um so maybe i also had in mind that people might see it as beginning to you know as helping to influence that process of changing the workplace and humanizing it more and how has it been received by those people if those are the people you had in your mind have you had any feedback yes about you know who it's landed with and what they've made of it I've had some completely wonderful critical acclaim, which has just been beyond dreams, really. So ranging from the Financial Times, who have been brilliant and got behind it, um, to Marie Claire magazine. Who and I'm completely delighted at that spectrum, you know. So Mary Claire magazine, that in fact the paperback comes out on Thursday, and on the front there's Gwen Adshead, author of The Devil You Know, which is a brilliant book, completely brilliant book. And then at the bottom on the front is Julia Hobsbawm, who's very influential in thinking about the world of work. So she's written astounding blurb saying it's one of the most important books about the workplace ever published can't really get better than that no you can't you absolutely can't it's wonderful it's wonderful and then on the back there's the ft saying it's a remarkable book blah 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 and then there's marie claire uk saying it's essential reading for anyone who's ever felt rattled by workplace dynamics So it's held wonderful critical acclaim. And I've also had individual people within organisations say this has been so helpful. They and I've had people thanking me for the courage to write something which, you know, put all of me on the page, really. Well, not quite all of me, but an awful lot of me. I did feel extremely exposed as it went to print. Um, but people have been very, um, very lovely in response to that and seem to feel that's really made a difference. And they've used it. I've had people come and say, can you supervise me now or can I come for coaching now? So it has it, it's landed with the critics, but also with the people on the ground who I wrote it for. It, so far, touch wood, it seems to be landing well. Yes, I think when you humanise yourself like that, it it allows people to connect with you who might not have been confident to make that connection before. So I can really imagine people thinking, do you know what, actually, this coaching business doesn't sound as frightening as perhaps I thought it was. Or, you know, maybe there is hope for my team, because some of the teams that you mention in the book, 
are really have been in really bleak places. Um, you know, I think as a clinician reading it, I've been part of teams um, mm. like that. And clinical psychologists are often asked to lead reflective practice, yeah. uh, which is not something we're often that well equipped to do, actually. <laughs> I certainly wasn't. Um, and I really recognised some of those teams in, in a couple of the examples that you gave mm-hmm. in the book. And I think the fact that you shared the fact that you you did feel some of that despair with them, mm. but that you travelled through it um, to, you know, sometimes a more hopeful place, but at least a kind of pragmatic solution, I, I thought was extremely powerful and would perhaps give people that that push to, to do it and take that risk of engaging uh, with a consultant like yourself, even when it feels impossible and like there could be no positive outcome. I think, and thank you, that's that's really lovely. I think that is true. I think I have had people come to me who might not have come otherwise or have read the book and thought, oh, you know, maybe we can do something after all that we thought we couldn't do. Or thought, it's not just me. You know, other people are really struggling too. It's not just me. They're not bizarre feelings I'm having. Yes, so important. And also at the team level, although it it can be really bad and really bleak and under really difficult circumstances, you're unlikely to be the only team that have ever experienced that. Um, I think that's really, really helpful for people. So for anybody who hasn't come across the book yet, it's it's kind of a collection of case studies and, and stories interspersed with some really personal reflections from your own life uh, as well. How did you decide which case studies and stories to include? Uh, that changed over the long course of writing the book as well. At uh, the beginning, I think I just chose what seemed to be the best stories, you know, stories that I thought would really speak to readers. But eventually, quite late on, actually, I came up with the structure that I've got, which is part one, the fundamentals of being human, part two, I can't remember how we lose ourselves, which is about the capacity, our capacity for destructiveness and how that can really pull us down in the workplace as well as outside the workplace, of course. And part three is how we find ourselves. So that our capacity for constructiveness and our potential and how important that is in the workplace and outside the workplace. And once I've come to that structure, then I realize, of course, I've got to have stories that illustrate though each part of that sufficiently so that's how I then chose the stories it sounds like quite an organic process that you didn't sit down and really rigidly plan it out you kind of started writing and the and the creative process took you to those stories yes that's right and I did in the end I mean I got the the deal with my publisher on the 7th of February 2020 we had no idea Wow. Was about to hit. And I got it on the basis of three sample chapters and a very detailed, thorough proposal, um, which included chapter outlines. But and then I had a year to write the book. Um, and this was now, I called it version 5.5 because I just couldn't bear to think I was now on version six. I decided it was 5.5. Um, But even then, during the writing, 
I would suddenly think of, oh, well, I ended up thinking of two more chapters that I hadn't got in before. And and my editor was absolutely fine. Yeah, fine. Add two. I, th- I can't remember. It's possible I ditched something as well. I can't remember. And I did things like when I came to the chapter on belonging that was in my outlines, because I thought that was really important. And I suddenly had the idea that maybe it could be first person. I hadn't planned to do all the personal stuff. That was a completely new revelation to me that I'd end up doing that. And I wrote to my editor and said, I'm thinking, what about doing this in first person? What do you think? And she said, I think it could be very interesting. Give it a go. That That's really fascinating. And actually a bit of a relief to me because publishing, you do have to submit this very detailed outline. And I've, I don't know, I'm kind of going through it at the moment and feeling a little bit constrained. Mm. I'm like, where's the creativity in this? It's not really how my brain likes to work. And um, mm. so it's quite nice to hear that when you came back with suggestions for new and a, a bit of a different direction, they were willing to listen to you on that. Because I think those first person chapters are a real strength of the book and something that makes it very unique. And you know what? I think my editor would totally agree with you. I think she's really pleased with that. And she was, yes, completely open to me trying different things and coming up with two different chapters. And yeah, very open to the creative process, which meant that the writing, of course, it was hard, but it was also hugely pleasurable because I, I wasn't just fulfilling a contract. I was in a creative process. And the editing was also very pleasurable because mm. I mean, we carried on with that then that's interesting because I think most people feel a bit stressed by the idea of the editing process mm. so do you think that was to do with the relationship you had with your editor that made it more pleasurable than painful um I I barely knew her at the beginning of editing I mean I put in a couple of like can I try belonging in for or what do you think and she said good idea um so and I'd met her, but I barely knew her. I, I liked her when I met her and I liked her response to me questioning belonging. But there wasn't a lot to go on, but she her and I was very anxious waiting for the structural edits, which is the first thing, you know, the whole structure of the book and is it working and all of that. I was very anxious thinking, oh God, what's going to come back? And I'd I'd read things on Twitter where writers were saying I had to lose 30,000 words of my, and I thought, oh my God, oh my God, is this what can happen? So I was, I was pretty nervous about it. But actually, she responded. It was lovely. She did me detailed structural suggestions. There wasn't that much that she suggested. But I remember now we lost a chapter because she said, um, I love the introduction, but I want to see a bit more of this, this and this. You haven't done enough of that. Um, It's great. But, you know, can you add more of that? And then she said, and when we get to chapter, I think it was chapter three, she said it doesn't quite work, or maybe it was chapter four. She said, because you've gone into such, the first two or three chapters are such great stories. And then suddenly you're in a chapter that's not a story. 
And at that point, it doesn't particularly work. And you could either, so she gave me choices. So I love the way it was approached. She said, you could either put a bit of this chapter in the introduction, actually, and lose this chapter, or turn this chapter into a story. So she gave me a choice as to which way I wanted to go. And I decided to put a little bit of it into the intro and I lost a whole chapter. And it she, was your decision. I, I guess that feels It was really my good. decision. It was my decision. And there was another thing that she did that I really liked with belonging. As you know, I um, I identify quite a lot about my family and where they came from, you know, being immigrants and what country they came from. And when she read that chapter, I hadn't, I'd said we were immigrants, but I hadn't said where we were from. That came much later in the book. And she said she wasn't sure why I'd done that. Um, but at the moment, it was a speed bump. Mm. It would stop people because they'd be busy thinking, oh, well, where did they come from? So she again, she gave me a choice. Either tell them now, tell the reader now, or if there's a reason you don't want to do that, let me know and I'll give you suggestions about how you can keep it out but not make it a speed bump. That's really interesting. What did you decide to do? To tell them now. I thought, okay, I'll tell them now. I was nervous because it's a controversial country for listeners. Um, I was born in Israel and there's this it it gets such headlines around it. And I was nervous that so soon in the book telling people that might change the way people read the whole book. But given that she'd said, I'm not sure why you're not saying it now, I thought, okay, okay. I'll go with it. That's really interesting because having read the book, I think some of that reticence comes across when you're telling your life story mm -hmm. uh, about how when you were younger, you were reticent about talking about your heritage and, and even really thinking about it and exploring it. Mm. And so it's almost like a micro version of the wider process. Very interesting. That's true. Absolutely. That's true. And, and actually the writing process and the editing process makes you really ask yourself a lot of those questions. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like quite a therapeutic process to go through in its way. It is. There were a couple of times when I thought, oh, my God, it's like being in analysis again. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's different. Obviously, it's very different, but it is quite therapeutic. And you have to dig really deep and think, well, why? Why did I say that? Or why am I not willing to now say this? So how did you come to the decision to be so open with your self-exploration? Um, I think even that was organic. At first, belonging just felt it like it would suddenly be, it suddenly felt that it would be richer and more meaningful if it was my experience of belonging. And I actually loved writing that chapter. So that was a good experiment that I thought I can do it. I, I'm not scared now of doing it, although some of it was scary later. But I think I grew to feel, I can't pretend I set out feeling that, but I grew to feel that if I was writing a book about all that we are, it had to include me. Otherwise, it's all that we are except not me. It's all that you are 
you know, I understand everything, of course, just you don't. So it's all that you are and I'm somehow special and excluded from that. And that wasn't going to work. So if if I'm really saying all that we are, I have to include myself. It's interesting because I often talk to my um, coaching clients and my members in psychology business school about self-disclosure and how much feels comfortable to share. Mm. And I know it's often particularly difficult for those of us that are, are coming from a psychoanalytic background. So how did you grapple with that? Great question. Um, there was a, a kind of very, very memorable moment for me in the writing process in, in the year that I was actually writing the this book. Um, and I thought, I may not be able to work again. I may not be able to do the work that I currently do. Presumably I won't, you know, I might find other, yeah, I might be able to give talks about the book or whatever, but I may no longer be able to do the kind of work I do. And what amazed me having had that thought, and I think it was a proper, it was appropriate to think that, but what amazed me was that there was basically a nanosecond of question in my mind and then it was okay if I can't I can't but the book takes priority and this is what I think the book needs and I'll face that when I come to it I mean I'm really lucky that I'm of an age where I I you know I I I'm now getting my pension so I don't I don't have the if, if this was a decade ago or two decades ago that would be a whole other decision because you can't lightly say I may not be able to carry on in this kind of work anymore so I'm I'm lucky that it was an easier decision from that point of view but I didn't hesitate in thinking this is what the book needs and that's my priority so that mission that you wanted to accomplish with the book, it really took precedence over everything else. Huge, huge. To my amazement, I've never been as ambitious about anything in my life. I was amazed at my ambition for this. Wow. So, gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but just <laughs> quickly to kind of follow up on, on, on the one about self-disclosure. So now the book is out there in the world being read. How do you feel about that work going forward? Is it is it the end of that chapter for you, or have you have you made any decisions on that front? Um, a couple of people, I've had a few people come to me having read the book, so they've come for coaching or to ask me to work with their organisation because they've read the book, and I decided to see how it what you know to judge each one on on merit. So. Of course, I know that they know far more about me than I'd normally tell clients, but I'm not a therapist. I'm not a clinician. So it's not as clear cut as it would be if I was. So I thought, well, I'll see. And a couple of coaching clients, to my surprise, actually, what I realized it meant for them was that they went very deep very soon because that's what the book told them you know they realized that was the nature of the work 
And so they didn't waste any time. They just went straight there. It was as if the book was a massive induction process for them into this way of working. And, and they were up for it and they went there. I've also I have had a very bad experience where I was asked to do a piece of work that in hindsight, I think was just about ticking off a, a checkbook box a tit list almost so that almost they could say look well an author an author has worked for us has considered this so we're we're great and so that taught me that I've got to be more careful to consider why people are coming to me if they've read the book but it but it, given that and I, I do need to be more careful in in what I say yes to um but it doesn't seem to be the total no I can't do this anymore that's That's really interesting but yeah thank you for sharing a bit about that process because I know it's a subject that brings people a lot of anxiety yeah and just thinking you know yes you've got to think it all the way through yeah um but also allowing yourself a bit of grace to sort of see how it feels after it's done and what feels right seems very important I think that's absolutely right and I think I think at times as as professionals, we can almost be too safe in, you know, we put a boundary out and we steer well away from it. We keep on the right side of it, but we give quite a bit of space between our work and the boundary. And I suppose I like to think of it as I'm constantly at the boundary rather than well away from it. And if you're at the boundary, you have to keep questioning and considering if I do this am I going over have I lost the boundary what's right what isn't right but for me it seems important to go there in order to ask the question not to go there and just break boundaries at all but to be curious about it I think that's really true especially in the the way that the modern world is changing in in regards to information information sharing and what the meaning of information sharing is that context is changing so we always need to be considering our boundaries where we've drawn them before may not be where we draw them now even at the beginning of my career no one really knew anything about anybody. We only had um, social media in universities between networks of people who already knew each other. Um, What a different world that was. Now, of course, people can see me talking about my views on mental health and all sorts of things. And that, of course, has an impact on the therapeutic relationship. But there's also the fact that if that wasn't there, that would mean something especially to the younger generation. And so I have to think about which one of those meanings I want to be there. Exactly. And and you're having to engage in that decision-making and that thinking all the time, really, aren't you? I think Mm. that's absolutely right. And I also, what I found is that clients who have come to me having read the book have been very sensitive about it. I remember one guy saying to me, I'd love to know why your family did this. And he said, I'm not expecting you to answer me. I'm just telling you, I'm curious. And I thought that was very nice. He immediately made it clear that he knew I wasn't now going to have a great conversation to go into things I hadn't even gone into in the book. He was just giving me his response. 
Well, it's, I think that's possibly due to your authorial voice in the book. Mm. I think I could really imagine what it would be like to sit and work with you. And I could imagine where those boundaries would be drawn. And again, that's an experience people haven't had. If they've never had you know, input from someone like you, they, they're usually going in blind and might yeah. not really know where those boundaries lie. Whereas somebody who's read your book, I think it comes across quite clearly mm. how you engage with your clients. So it actually gives them a bit of a clue as to what's appropriate and what's not. I think that's probably true, actually. So, yes, he he knew that it was wouldn't be appropriate for me to engage in that whole conversation, but it was completely fine for him to say it had left him curious. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've never thought of that dimension before. Um yeah, but I think it possibly does help people know how to engage with mm. us if we put out a little bit more about our process. Mm. So I, I've, I've heard a lot about what was really rewarding about the book, um, but there must have been challenges along the way. What did you find most challenging in, in the process? Um, oh, gosh. Um I, I suppose a couple of things, really. One was when I started, I knew I wanted to do kind of stories, but I didn't have the skills. I couldn't write the book I've now written. So that was really challenging. And actually what I had to do is learn to write, learn to write in a non-academic way, not a way that you'd write papers. That was very challenging to really learn to write. Um, and there were a couple of things. I remember one draft chapter at one point I sent my agent because I you have to have a literary agent to get to a mainstream publisher. My agent didn't read every chapter by any means. But before I can't remember why she read this chapter, I was still trying to add a chapter and I sent some draft and it was terrible it was really terrible but I thought it was great <laughs> but, you know, you know I think it was Oscar Wilde said kill your darlings my god that's true um and she very politely said something that made it pretty clear that she didn't think it was terribly good and she said something like I think you you need to be careful that you don't lose the trust of your reader at this point I also sent it to Mike Brearley who I talked to about seminar series I ran and ran and he stayed with me along the way for the book and I sent it to him with great pride and he just very even more politely said um has your agent seen this which I think was a clue really that he didn't want to say to me, what are you doing? And well, then, that sounds painful, but it, it was. Time, of course, writing for the mainstream audience is its own skill. It is its own skill. And then when the agent said that, I reread it and I absolutely cringed. And I thought, but this is completely terrible. How could I have thought that this was all right? So, I mean, of course, I had to have acquired that skill before I got the agent. But still, I, I made blips like that. There was another blip where the final chapter I wrote, this was really hard, where I'd added a couple of chapters and I'd run out of steam. I'd really run out of steam. 
And I was so naive about the whole process. I said to my agent, I can't do the last one now. I just can't. I haven't got it in me. I'll have to do it later, even when it's with the publisher. And she said, you can't. You can't do it when it's with the publisher. You can tweak it, but you can't add a new chapter. And she said, tell me what you're struggling with, what you want to do, what's blocking you. Let's talk about it, which was lovely. I didn't actually do that, although it would have been a good idea to have done it. But I thought, OK, I've just got to do it. I've got to do it. So I wrote it. Again, thought it was the bee's knees. It's always a bad sign for me anyway when I think it's the bee's knees. And I sent it to her. Uh, and by this time, she'd read the entire manuscript ready to send to the publisher. But she hadn't read this final chapter. Um, it wasn't the final one, but the final one I wrote. And she came back to me and said, it's a really good first draft. And at that point, I, I wanted to crawl under the table because I thought, oh, my God, a first draft. I didn't even think I could write one more word. And now I basically had to redo it completely. Oh, so those, those times were very challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. So how did you then get through that? Did you find support? How, how did you pick yourself up and get writing again? <laughs> I think I got through it because I was so dedicated to the project that the book was. And also what she said makes made so much sense to me. She said, you know, you've got to write this in a way that's true to this book, to your book. It's got to have longevity. You know, it really made sense to me. So that helped me. I think often with creative projects, this is the story, isn't it? A lot of people have ideas for books and they might even write a first draft, but it's that commitment to the vision that gets you through the agony of having to do the next bit. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you've got because writing is really hard. I mean, it is really hard. And if you don't have that commitment, I don't think you well, I wouldn't be able to get through it. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly going through to traditional publishing and trying to create something with that longevity to it. Mm. I think certainly the way that my brain is, I quite like writing the first draft <laughs> of anything, mm. um, but it's to go back and do that editing process and really commit to making this the best thing it can be. Yeah. That's, that's graft, isn't it? It takes real deep within. You have to love it. Yeah. And you, and there's a lot of the editing processes. I mean, your own editing, but then once you're in the editing process with the publisher, because you get your structural edits, then you get your line edits where the editor literally picks up something line by line and says, is that the right word? Is there a better way of saying that or whatever it is? And then there's the copy edits and then there's the proofreading. There's a lot of stages. You have to keep going through all of it. it. It sounds tough, but it sounds like ultimately it was worth it for you. I mean, one question I've, I've just dying to ask you that I didn't prepare you for at all. So sorry for putting you on the spot. Don't um, worry. But, you know, you've had some really impressive people reading the work and, and reviewing it. We mentioned the Financial Times and Marie Claire. How did that come about? Uh... At the For the hardback, I wrote, you know, like Mike Brearley, 
I wrote to Gwen Adshead. She'd never heard of me. And she did a review, which was incredibly generous. And I'm very grateful for. Um, I also wrote to a lot of people who either didn't reply or who said, sorry, no, can't. Or their agent said, sorry, no, they can't. They're really busy. They can't. Um, so it's, it's another hard one. But and and the FT, I had been in contact with somebody at the FT and then she said she'd read it. And then she came up with a completely wonderful review. But that was at the point of publication. So it didn't go on the book at all. But then in the year that the hardback's been out, it's just gradually galvanized more attention and I I suppose I've been very because I'm so committed to the project I've been on Twitter I've been on LinkedIn and gradually people have come across it and then that and then they've started making comments and then I say or my editor says could we use that please and so we've got all this incredible blurb for the paperback. And I wrote to more people for the paperback. And I think people who had made little comments and I said, would we, would you mind if we use that? So we've got, as well as the front and back covers, we've got two pages of endorsements at the beginning of the paperback, which is wonderful. Brilliant. So it sounds like it's important to really commit to getting those endorsements and recognizing that that is important because you know, for people to trust you enough to invest their time, they need to kind of know that this is worth that investment. And those first few that you got, I'm sure that has generated the snowball effect that you're seeing now. Yes. And what was really lovely in the first few for the hardback, I had four um, quotes for the book and two were by novelists. And I knew them from social media and they very generously quoted and their, their quotes are still in the paperback. Um, and I'm so appreciative that novelists are, are writing nice things because it is it is um, narrative nonfiction. So to have a novelist say they enjoyed it is great. It's lovely. Well, I must admit, I'm surprised to hear you say that you struggled with the writing process because it, it really reads like somebody who's been writing books their whole life. Mm. Um, did, did you do any courses? Where did you learn to write if you're saying it didn't come so naturally? Well, thank you for saying that. I, um, I got myself a writing mentor and that made an enormous difference, really enormous difference. I went on writing retreats. I had done like a four day introductory writing course, but I had no idea at that point that it would turn like this is what I'd end up writing. Um, I later did a little bit of very introductory novel writing courses, and I probably used a few of the techniques when I was editing this. But what I found is during the process, during the years of writing this, is I grew to love writing. And that's probably what you're picking up. So I started to really enjoy the craft of writing. And, you know, some of the things that might sound really pernickety, um, but like wondering, is that the word I want? Is there another word I want? I loved all that. 
I absolutely loved it. And playing around with a sentence or two sentences, or should it be three sentences, or where was the semicolon, or was it a colon? <laughs> I grew to love all of that, the craft of writing. So I, you're you're seeing, hopefully you're seeing the end result of that. Yeah, it absolutely does come come through as a labour of love. Mm. You, you can feel that as you're reading the book. I think there's a real theme emerging here about total commitment to the vision mm. and, you know, doing everything it took at every stage. Mm. And it reminds me of a saying, which I can't remember where I came across, probably on some social media somewhere, that somebody said, um, what would you do if success was not optional? And it, it sounds like that's kind of the attitude you took here. Like this book has to work because this message has to be out here. So I'm going to do everything I've got to do to make that happen. Even the really uncomfortable stuff like writing to hundreds of people and, and learning how to, you know, learning the craft of writing, I suppose. Mm. And I, whereas I think a lot of people fall at those hurdles because they haven't found the topic that lights them up in that way that gives them the the fire to get through those difficult times it sounds like you really found the the book concepts that was going to push you through all yes. of that stuff yes I think that's totally right and I knew from the outset I was committed to the concept but I think the further along I went the more and more committed I got to it to the concept because I was it was becoming more and more, I was getting clearer and clearer about what I really was trying to do. I wasn't that clear at the beginning, but as I got clearer, I, I didn't know at the beginning, it was all about trying to humanize the workplace and trying to influence uh, as best I can a little bit, trying to influence what we do at work. I didn't know that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So as I got clearer and clearer about that, I became more and it, that, that um, drove my commitment on. So one thing I always ask people on the podcast before we finish is, you know, what two action steps would you recommend that psychologists and therapists listening to this take forward? Mm. It's a good, good question, isn't it? To say, what would you actually do taking forward, taking this forward? I think, I think one thing is, as a psychologist, as a therapist, you might be in private practice, but if you are, you're probably in a professional body, which is an organisation. And you might also work in an organisation in the NHS or wherever it is, you might work in an organisation. So I think one action is to bring some of what you know, your expertise to bear on understanding what is happening in your organisations you know, understanding those dynamics, understanding those difficulties in your organisation. You've got incredibly helpful knowledge to use in that way. That's one. I think the other is to be really aware of just how much all of us and all you and your colleagues and your patients and your clients are affected by work and their work experiences and how complex that is and how rewarding it can be and how awful it can be and how that affects every other aspect of our life and I think that's an action as well to just 
have that awareness of how everybody you're seeing as a colleague or as a client is is affected in in perhaps a more substantial way than we always necessarily give credit for. Yes, I think that's really powerful. I, I thought as a consequence of reading the book, I started to think about my clinical formulations mm. and you know, because I work in perinatal, often people are on a break from work, but that doesn't mean that the workplace isn't present and that those dynamics are not playing out mm. in some way, especially knowing the pressure that's on people surrounding maternity um, at the moment. Oh, yes. So there's there's a lot to think about there. And I, I think the book really got me thinking about how my clinical work might incorporate that more. Um, so yes, thank you so much for sharing those. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really inspiring book, really inspiring talking to you today. So if people want to connect with you, you mentioned that you do a bit of social media, where should people go to find you? Um, either Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, they'll easily find me. Brilliant. And I will, of course, put a link to where people can find the book um, in the show notes for this episode. It's all that we are. And I really recommend uh, that if you haven't read it yet, you go and get yourself a copy because it's very inspiring and definitely one of my favourite books. Oh, thank you so much. I loved having the conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. Are you just starting out in private practice? Feeling overwhelmed by all the stuff there is to do by any chance? Paralysed by perfectionism or procrastination? Never fear, Psychology Business School has got your back and the good news is there's actually not that much you need to do to run your practice safely and effectively. Download our free checklist today to find out exactly what really matters. Tick off every box and you can see your first clients with confidence that you've done everything important. Get your free copy at psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash checklist. Thank you so much for listening to the Business of Psychology podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps more mental health professionals just like you to find us. And it also means a lot to me personally when I read the reviews. Thank you in advance and we'll see you next week for another episode of Practical Strategy and Inspiration to move your independent practice forwards.